Um, but I want to say a special thanks to Jake for uh, filling in for me. Um, I'm very blessed as a pastor here, and we are very blessed as a community to have so many people who can fill in in the pulpit and do an amazing job. Um, I was listening to Jake's sermon, and the last like 14 minutes of it, you know, recorded-wise, I was like, that was worth the whole sermon series. Um, everything we did in James, I think, was worth it just to hear that 15 minutes. And so it's very touching for me. Um, and I know the congregation uh, appreciates it a lot. So thank you, Jake, for filling in. Um, I did miss you all. It's ha- good to be back. This is my home on Sunday morning. And so when I'm not here, I do feel a little bit homeless. Um, so it's, it feels safe and grounded to be back with you. Um, and so we're going to start a new sermon series this morning. Uh, it's going to be unlike most of our sermon series. It's going to be just four weeks, I promise. Usually it's like a year and a half when we do a sermon series. We pick a book and like get stuck in it forever. Um, but just four weeks. Um, the sermon series is called Kingdom Relationships. And so there's a couple of things I've learned uh, just growing up and, and living and then also um, hearing from, from some of you. The first one is that relationships are hard. I mean, relationships are hard work. Um, it's easy to mess up relationships, even unintentionally, right? You can have the best intentions um, with a relationship, whether it's your spouse, marriage, or whether it's with your children, or whether it's with your, your neighbors or in-laws, or, or even maybe your enemies. Um, it's easy to mess them up. Uh, intentionally, and then it's, it's easy to mess them up unintentionally. I mean, relationships are just a tricky thing. Um, and then over the past six months or so, I've, I've heard from a, a lot of people in our congregation um, who have been getting help for their relationships. Um, there are a large number of people in our congregation who go to marriage counseling, um, and, and they've come to me individually, and we've been able to like put them together and be like, guess what? You're not alone. <laughs> There's a whole bunch of people in marriage counseling because marriage is hard. And sometimes you need a little bit of boost. Lindsay and I have been to marriage counseling. Uh, I go to therapy. Um, I'm a big believer um, that everybody could benefit from some therapy. There's no way you've gotten this far in life without some emotional baggage, without some scars that influence your behavior and and perception of of other things, um, without you maybe being fully aware of it. So relationships are hard, and what we're going to do in this series is look at um, how Jesus calls us to relate to other people, um, distinctively as Christians, as kingdom people. What does it look like to be people who follow Jesus, and and how does that play into our relationships? Um, There's lots of books, self-help books, seminars on relationships, um, but I think there are some very distinctive things that that apply to um, the commands Christians are given. Um, as they follow Christ. So we'll look just at Jesus' teachings uh, on a few aspects of relationships. Um, They're hard. You know, I've made a lot of mistakes in my relationships, um, even, again, unintentionally. So when I took Lindsay out on our first date, I very strategically took her out on Black Friday, thinking I have a bad memory, but I'll always remember our anniversary for our first date, only to find out that Black Friday is a different day every year. And I was like, man, I had this so thought out. This is such a, <laughs> a well thought out plan. And then afterwards, you know, people make fun of me. and They're like, what is, what is even the symbolism of Black Friday? Like, that doesn't seem like a great day to, and I'm like, just stop. It obviously, it was not a good idea. Um, it, it obviously didn't work very well. Um, and so uh, we'll be exploring um, 
the relationships and, and, and principles and things that we can go and, and put into our lives that will help and hopefully, hopefully every aspect um, with our marriages, if we're married, um, um, with people we're dating, if we're, we're single in a relationship, um, with our family members, with our brothers and sisters, with our children, with our in-laws, um, with our coworkers. And again, maybe the scriptures might say even relationships with our enemies, with people that we don't get along with or don't treat us very well. Um, and so to start the series off, um, we're going to look at a passage in Luke chapter 10. So if you have your scriptures, um, open them up with me to Luke chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a hard, uh, black hardback, um, hard, co- hard cover underneath the seat around you. You're more than welcome to grab one of those. We'll be in Luke 10. Um, and today's uh, topic, today's passage, I think is the most central theme of Jesus' teachings about relationships. And I think everything else we'll touch over the next three weeks are really just pieces of this one command that Christians have. Um, And so we read together in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, when we hear the words eternal life, we think of going to heaven after we die. Um, in this context, um, this is, probably means more of like, what must I do to live the life of eternity? What must I do to, to belong in the kingdom? Um, what must I do to experience God's blessings and to, to be in the, the cycle of what God desires for me? Um, and so Jesus asks him a question. He says, what's written in the law? You're a lawyer, right? What's there? How do you interpret it? How do you read it? And the, the guy answers, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you'll live. Yeah, do this. You've got it. You nailed it. That was the perfect answer. Do that, and you'll find life. Do that, and you'll find the blessings that God has for you. Do that, and you'll be in the kingdom rhythm of living, in the rhythm of following me as your, your Lord and as your Savior. Um, now this answer, what we can call like the double law of love, right? there's two directions, vertical and horizontal, love God and then love your neighbor as yourself, um, is a central teaching of Jesus. And so here the lawyer um, is the one who, who speaks this. Um, but in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus in both Matthew and Luke, Matthew 7, Luke 6, um, makes this a central part of his sermon, his most famous kind of address to the crowds. He says, the greatest commandment is to love God and love others. Love others as yourself. He'll say on on other times that all of the law and the prophets are encapsulated in this one command. That every other commandment or instruction God has ever given humanity all has been trying to lead people, crowd people into this stance. They would love God and that they would love other people. Paul picks up on this theme and he says, if you fulfill this, um, he says, you've fulfilled the entire law. This is the law of Christ. This is what it means to follow Christ, to experience, to send yourself in this double love. Um, now, the lawyer famously asked this question, as the lawyers do, looking for loopholes or exceptions. He says, who's my neighbor? This doesn't mean everybody that I got to treat like this. And Jesus tells a very famous parable, the Good Samaritan which most of us are probably familiar with. Um, Sometimes I think we're too familiar with it to recognize how kind of radical it was. 
Um, the parable of the Good Samaritan pretty much answers the question of who's your neighbor um, with everyone you come into contact with. Everyone whom you choose to love in obedience to me. Um, even your worst enemies. So the Samaritan, right? We think of a good Samaritan, and it's just an idiom for a helpful person, someone who, who did us a favor. Um, back then, a Samaritan was like a terrorist to us, right? I mean, these were the worst people that could ever existed. Um, these are, if anyone ever had an enemy and ever had a good reason to have an enemy, it was the Jewish people and the Samaritans, and they both hated each other. And Jesus makes the Samaritan the hero of the story. Um, and so the call to love doesn't even stop at people who are nice to you, who love you, who love you back. Um, but even to those who hurt you, Jesus will say that on, on other different occasions. Love your enemies. When people do bad things to you, respond by doing good things to them. If someone hits you, give them the other cheek. Right? If someone wants you to walk one mile, say, I can go two. I can go three. Respond with evil with good. Paul again picks up on this in Romans. Um, he says, uh, overcome evil with good. Don't repay evil with evil. Overcome it with, with good, with love. Um, so the love here that's so central to Jesus' teachings, um, I think can be described and thought of in a couple of ways. The, the emotion of love or the experience of love, um, I think could be described as joyful awareness of something or somebody other than yourself. To, to truly love something is to be aware of its existence and the joy that it brings you, to be grateful for it. Um, uh, I was reading some um, psychology and, and psychiatry books in, in prep for the series, and a real famous psychiatrist mentions that when people, even in old age, come to his practice, um, they often feel uh, abandoned by love, don't feel a, a strong love connection to somebody or to, to anything. And so he tries to get them to go to a moment in time where they felt love towards something or they felt love given to them. And he was like, you'd be surprised at how almost every single person, one of the purest times of love that they can remember is their childhood dog. More than their siblings, more than their parents, more than their spouse or ex-spouse, more than their neighbors or coworkers. And he's like, you see people's eyes light up with life, just thinking about it. Dogs are so great at this unconditional love, right? Dogs are great at this joyful awareness. They don't care what happened a week ago, right? But the moment you walk in the room, they're aware of you, and they're happy that you're there. They're joyful to be in your presence. Um, and, and this fills us with so much love. And then we return that love. We're joyfully aware of our, our canine companions. Um, so love is an emotion, as, a, as an experience. It's this joyful awareness and this gratitude for the existence of something or somebody. And then it, it's also a verb. It's also an action. So to love, um, to be a source of love, to give out love, um, is to act in loving ways. So nurture that thing or person, protect that thing or person, encourage that person, bless that person, um, work towards their maturity and towards their good, um, take on their needs as your own, identify with them, love them as yourself. Um, 
Empathy, I think, is, is one of the, the biggest things here um, when, when Jesus constantly commands his followers to love people as yourself. Empathize with them. Think hard about what they're feeling, what they're going through. We could define empathy as an ability to understand other people's experiences and their thoughts and viewpoints in a kind and thoughtful manner. You don't have to agree with their experience, with their emotions, or with their viewpoint, but you can put yourself in their shoes and you can appreciate where they're coming from, even if you don't quite understand it fully or you might not come from that place. Um, And so I think this is one of the big things that's lacking in in the world and in relationships as a whole. Um, I think every relationship would be immediately built up if we could have some empathetic self-transformation. The more empathy you can pump into a relationship, the healthier and more loving it will be. Think about the presidential candidates and their debates and their interactions. So Donald Trump is unable to empathize with Hillary Clinton. I'm not just beating up at Trump. Hillary has the same problem with Donald, right? So, so Donald doesn't, I hope I can call him Donald. He's okay with that. Um, <laughs> Big D doesn't want, um, doesn't want to, to look at Hillary's email goof up, right? And say, I've made some mistakes. Sometimes I've done some things shortcutted and you know, she's apologized and maybe she's learned from her lesson. I, maybe I still don't agree with it. Maybe I still think this disqualifies her, but I can empathize with her. I can put myself in her place. And then I can wonder how I would want people to treat me if I had made a mistake like that. And empathy changes your, your thinking and your behavior towards people. Um, same with Hillary, right? She, she has a hard time. She's, I think she's better at verbalizing it, but I think down at the core in politics, she has a hard time empathizing, right? Why do you have these beliefs? Why would you talk this way about certain people? Why would you want to do these things uh, as government policies? Uh, I have no ability to understand and, and no attempt even to try to put myself in those shoes and think about what would I want to be called? How would I want to be talked to? Those kind of things. Um, and really the, the way our political system is set up is um, you fail if you show empathy, I don't think it's just the fact that, that our candidates have a hard time being empathetic. I think the whole thing is rigged, right? The moment you are empathetic, you lose. No one wants an empathetic candidate for their party, right? And so we create and we demonize and we separate and create division. Um, and, and this filters down, I think, even to our most basic relationships. To the extent that we can be empathetic, that we can love somebody as ourselves, we can self-identify with them, um, will be to the extent that we're able to love them, that we're able to foster and build up a, a healthy relationship. Um, so when Jesus commands us this, this double law command, love God and love others, um, this at one time is very similar to what most people would give you advice for in relationships without knowing Jesus or reading the Bible. You go to Barnes & Noble right now and go to read some secular self-help books and they'll probably advise you to love um, but there are distinctives about kingdom loving, about loving in a kingdom relationship. Um, one of the, the main distinctives is, notice he starts with, don't love yourself, but love God. That that's the center of our ability and our motivation to love other people. 
um, when we are joyfully aware of the love that God has shown us, when we are fully in the moment embracing the forgiveness he's given us, the identity he's given us, then we'll be able to go out and love other people. It's not something we do built on a love of ourselves. It's not something we do built on our own strength, right? We don't try to muster up love. If you try to muster up love, you're going to eventually run out. You're going to eventually burn out. But in the scriptures, First John makes this really clear. Um, we are able to love because we are first loved. Our ability to love, our ability to keep loving is only found when we are centered in God's love. The idea is, is like we're a cup, right? And so we, we get poured into us God's love and eventually it just fills to the brim and starts spilling everywhere. And it spills onto the people close to us. It spills onto the people we come in contact with. We love because God has loved us. Um, and then it doesn't require the Christian idea of love, command to love, doesn't require... Um, us to expect anything from other people. It is not dependent on the person you're called to love. Which again, I think is far different from um, how we naturally approach love or how um, you know, a self-help book might encourage you to love. Um, you just love them as yourself. Not love them if they're worthy of your love. Not love them if they are loving you back or receiving your love. He says, love them as you would want to be constantly loved, as you have been constantly and unchangingly loved um, by your Father, which is why, in fact, Jesus can and often does call us to love our enemies. It's not dependent, our love is not dependent on, on it being reciprocated to us. Um, if it is, again, you're just on a time limit until you're going to run out of love. Eventually, somebody or some person will stop responding or respond in a way that you don't receive love from them, uh, and you'll run out of the ability to love. But when your love's centered in God's love for you, um, and not dependent on the other person, Jesus says that's when you, you start building flourishing relationships. And so for Jesus, I think the, the basic principle, the, the biggest key, the center of all relationships is this command to love. To receive God's love, to love him back, and then to let that experience overflow into the relationships around us. Um, The key principle, I think, for Jesus is to, in all of our relationships, keep love alive. Keep love present. Keep love active. Choose to constantly be reminded of God's love. It's one reason church is so important. It's one reason... Um, we come at regular times um, beyond right, wanting to get an offering, um, beyond certain people wanting to have jobs, um, beyond wanting to take away your ability to watch the first 30 minutes of the Texans game. You know, the, the rhythm built into the Christian life is because on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, it's really easy to believe some lies. And you get beaten down. And on Sunday, we come together and regroup and if there's no other time in our week, at least there's this time where we're told the truth, where we're reminded of God's love for us, where we can kind of reset ourselves. Um, the the uh, um, slave community and, and early African-American um, religious community, Christian community, um, was well known for their services lasting very long. When I went over to Kenya, right, I went to a church to preach that morning, and 
left at like 8 p.m., right? I mean, it, was, it would not work here. <laughs> it would never fly over in the States. And uh, there's a famous story someone once asked. I think it was, you know, like a well-to-do white person who's used to like an hour-long service, and then you go. Why do y'all worship for so long? And they said, because we could spend a whole day worshiping, and it still wouldn't equal the amount of lies we're told during the week. We were told that we're less than human. We were told that we're not loved. We were not equal. And so we spend as much time as possible to recenter ourselves in this joyful awareness of who God is. Um, so we keep love alive. Uh, we keep in, in, in the front of our minds a decision, an action, a choice to become a source of love towards other people, to be a gift towards other people, to nurture them and encourage them, um, even if sometimes that means tough love. Um, love is not always perceived as the easiest or most convenient thing in the moment. Sometimes there's a long-term view of love, right? Um, that might create a little bit of conflict now, but ultimately is in that person's best interest. Um, a lot of times we might avoid a little bit of conflict, and then three, four, five, ten years later, that person finds themselves in a big hole, and it was really one of the most unloving things we could have done to that person. Um, parents, I think, instinctively know this, right? The reason you reprimand your kids is not because you like seeing them cry, you like spanking them, you like, you know, being upset yourself. Um, as a teacher, I have a little bit of insight in that. I don't like writing kids up. I don't like getting on to children. This is not like something I wake up and go, I hope I can do this today. The reason, though, that, that parents do this is because it's the best thing for that child. It might be hard in the short term, but long term, there's no more loving thing you can do um, than to, to guide their behavior uh, into a way that will build up relationships and community with other people. Um, so I think one of the most basic principles um, of, of this, this call to keep love alive, to keep love present in every relationship, is, um, can be expressed with some negatives. The first would be, um, kingdom people should never withdraw love from a relationship. Sh- I mean, we should be able to, to just uniformly take that option off the table. Um, we never respond to a relationship um, that's maybe being unfair to us or perceived unfairness uh, or maybe treating us badly by withdrawing our love. Um, that's why a lot of Christian counselors will encourage people, don't let divorce be a, a chip in your argument. I mean, don't let an argument build up and, and you have the last word being, okay, well, we can get a divorce. I mean, once you pull that chip out, once you threaten even to withdraw, some damage has happened to a relationship. You've created some anxiety and some fear and some trust issues. They're going to have to be worked pretty hard to overcome. Um, Even in relationships that are abusive, maybe, um, where you do have to remove yourself from the relationship, you shouldn't suppress your love toward that person. This is actually, I think, one of the keys to grieving successfully. Um, When someone close to you dies, um, you don't suppress or push down or ignore your feelings of love toward that person, but you hold on to them, even though they're not here anymore, 
or even though they might have left you, or even though you might have left them, you still wish the best for them. You still remember with gratitude the time that you did have with them. You still uh, decide to be a source of love, decide to be a gift to them. One of the the reasons I think we we have a hard time with Jesus' command here, with, with putting love in the center of our relationships, is because for some of us, we feel that love has betrayed us. We've been in loving relationships or, or people who are apparently supposed to love us, right? And we've been dramatically hurt. We've been abused. We've been betrayed. Um, Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 develops this idea of love and he says, love never fails. Now it might not always result, if you love somebody, it might not always result in the perfect response from that person. But the act of loving itself never ruined a relationship. No one or rarely anybody has ever left a relationship or seen it diminish because someone has genuinely expressed love towards another person. Love itself, right, does not hurt. It builds up. If you've experienced a relationship that's gone awry, where you've been abused or hurt or betrayed, um, at best, this was a pseudo-love, right? This was maybe a claim from somebody saying they loved you, um, but, but it was not a Christ-like love. It was a love that failed. That's a, that's a difference here. Christ-like love is never the wrong decision. You'll never in your life regret being in a relationship and choosing to be a source of love to the other person. Now, you might regret the opposite. Looking back on relationships, passing this and saying, I could have, I could have, been more in the moment there. I could have been more loving towards that person. But if we are to believe the scriptures, I think we'll never sit there and be like, man, I just, I ruined that relationship by loving that person. I should have never done that. You as an individual will always be healthier and relationships will almost always flourish um, when you pour love into them. Um, love, I think, is, is also the kind of ultimate way to resolve conflict. All relationships involve conflict, right? Um, It's just part of being fallen human beings. You get next to other fallen human beings, you're going to have disagreements. You're going to have misunderstandings. Um, You're going to have things that just don't quite match up. Um, But but psychologists, psychiatrists, uh, and people who have lived this can tell you it's very hard to stay in a conflict with somebody that you're actively loving. I mean, those two things have a hard time existing at the same time. If you're empathetically loving them as yourself, at the same time realizing that your identity is secure in in your father and his love. It's not dependent on your situations, not dependent on your surroundings and other people's actions towards you. Uh, At the same time, it's really hard to regret anything if you're centered, if you're living in love. Because it's this joyful awareness, right? Of the love puts you in the present moment. And so maybe some horrible things happened to you in the past, but it's really hard to focus on those because you're overwhelmed by this awareness of how blessed you are despite the path you had to take. It's very hard to, to hold on to regrets at the same time that you're actively receiving and giving love. Um, it's very hard to resent somebody or some situation 
at the same time. It's very hard to have anxiety about the future at the same time. Love, love grounds you, it anchors you in the present. Gives you hope for the future. Gives you perspective on the past. That's the, the, I think, ultimate kind of source of conflict resolution. And so how can, how can we apply this to our lives? How can we, nuts and bolts, on the ground, um, implement some more ways to love uh, in the relationships that we're in? Um, I've got four things here. The first one is um, we need to be sure that our, 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 our decision to love and our efforts to love other people are coming not from our own strength and not from their deservedness, but from God's love for us. Um, you, we can even experiment with this, right? What would happen if you spent two or three times a day, five minutes, three minutes, really acknowledging this joyful awareness of what God has done for you? You'd probably find that after lunch, if you could spend those three minutes, you go approach those same coworkers, the same family members with a different attitude, a different perspective. They can reset your day. You might have built up all this kind of anxiety and anger and frustration, and it starts to feel overwhelming, and your shoulders start to, to feel heavy. And when you're frustrated and angry or lonely, you're more likely to say things you don't mean, to hurt people, um, and then regret that later. But what if we, we experimented with really connecting on a daily, moment-by-moment basis with our identity in Christ? How much better would we be able to be at not only being healthy human beings, but also able to love other people? So, so my therapist gave me, she, she started me on some biofeedback. And so what that is, is, um, as she would explain it, most people are actually really bad at understanding how much stress they're under. A lot of Americans, in particular, first world problems, but we live at a high level of stress, and so it becomes our like, normal standing point, right? So most people are actually, their bodies are sending out stress signals. Your immune system's shut off. It's fight or flight. But for you, this isn't a big deal. This is how you normally function in your world. And then on the other hand, a lot of people over-exaggerate stress sometimes. Their body itself might not be in a stressful state, um, but they conjure up stress or to get empathy or um, sympathy from other people, uh, exaggerate some of the stress that they're under. Um, some of the, the difficulties they're facing. And so to be more scientific, um, there's been a lot of science done um, where you can now use biological feedback, like actual things about your body to inform you about the stress you're under. Um, so I've got this thing that, that measures your heart rate. Scientists have figured out um, that one of the key indicators of stress for your body is the variability between your heartbeats. So if your heart beats in a constant pace, Kind of paradoxically, that sends out signals to your body that it's under stress. Um, people speak of the mind of the heart now. Um, some people would claim even that your heart sends out more electrical signals than your brain does. Um, but if your heart beats at different intervals with no consistency, again, it's kind of paradoxical. I would think it'd work the other way. This is a, a signal to your whole body, to your mind, things are okay. We're not tightened down the ship, right? We're relaxed. Turn on the immune system. Refresh. Heal. Be in a calm, alert, peaceful state of mind. Um, and so 
you know, it plugs onto your ear, it takes your heart rate, and it has red, which means bad. And if I'm really anxious, right, if I'm really overwhelmed, I put that thing on, and it's just dark, dark red. Um, and then it goes to blue if it starts to get a little bit better. And then green is, is your highest, right? Green is, is really good. And what's interesting about this is twofold. One, you can actually feel it in your body. That's what's kind of addicting and, and scientific about it, right? It's no longer just guessing at what might relax you or what might get you into a better frame of mind. It's actually seeing your body respond and then feeling it. Like in real time. Um, so uh, you can have this and you can be in green. I'm in green. My therapist is next to me. And then all of a sudden it goes red for two seconds and jumps back up to green. She goes, what just happened? I go, I thought of a regret that I have. Or I thought of a, a situation coming up that I feel overwhelmed about. And you see it, right? In that actual second, your heart sends out a different signal to your whole body. And you can feel it shift in a whole moment. I mean, literally, Lindsay's tried it out. Um, everyone I've, I've let play around with it has ordered one so far. Um, I'm an unwilling evangelist now. Because, I mean, you really feel it. It makes a difference. I mean, your whole body gets reset. Your brain goes into this calm, alert, peaceful, loving state that resets the last four or five, six hours. And then also, it allows you to figure out what actually gets you to that state and what doesn't get you to that state. And, and the, as my therapist first introduced it to me, she was like, it's, it's, it's amazing what, what the scientists have even found. The two quickest ways and two most effective ways to get it in the green, to get your body relaxed and calm, are to re- recall, focus on, or relive an experience of unconditional love or sit in a, a grateful posture mentally. And, and she's not allowed to talk about religion with me. She's not a Christian therapist or anything like that. Um, but she's like, it's almost like really cool evidence that God designed our entire bodies biologically, physiologically, to perform better when we're experiencing love, when we're in joyful awareness of everything around us, we see it as a gift that we're grateful for. And then we can see what thoughts, what approaches, situations, throw us into that stressed mode, throw us into that um, panicked mode where we're less likely and less able to love um, because we're not receiving as much love. This is, I think, why some people do these daily devotions. They're set three times a day, right? To, to just recenter themselves on their identity, to let God pour some love into them so that they can go approach their relationships a little bit differently than maybe after a full day of stress and frustration and anger that's been built up. The second thing is to, to, to choose to love. I mean, to make a decision. Um, to choose to be someone who treats the people that they love as a treasure as someone to be nurtured and protected and encouraged and blessed. To not let it be an accident, to not let it be something that comes naturally, if the circumstances are right, if they're doing the right things, but to consciously say, I'm going to choose to be a source of love. I'm going to choose to be a gift to other people. Love is something that we do. It's not something that always naturally has to happen to us or that we naturally fall into. In our natural state, right, I think we fall into a lot of hate, a lot of anger. 
we have to counter that by choosing love. And we're able to choose love because of God's love. Um, the third thing is when, when conflict starts happening in a relationship, when a relationship starts breaking down, you need to stop everything at that point. I mean, the moment you feel conflict, the moment you feel tension in a relationship, you know whatever direction, whatever's happening, it's only leading you down a wrong path. The, every second that conflict lives longer, that tension is allowed to exist, only multiplies the negative effects it's going to have on your relationship. The quicker you can shut it down, stop it, maybe retreat, get back into a, a healthy state, right, of experiencing God's love, choosing to love that other person, what you'll see is you'll damage your relationships a lot less and you'll build them up a whole lot more by being aware of, by noticing, by responding um, to the, the ups and downs of relationships. And then the last one is, is to communicate your love. Um, never speak anything but love. We'll talk about this next week. We'll talk about forgiveness. Um, but uh, in the like, 1960s, a lot of therapists thought venting your anger was really healthy for you. The science has started to shift around to say the opposite, that it's actually pretty unhealthy. Um, like expressing your most hatred, vitriol thoughts, kind of just cements you in those thoughts. And also it's probably not very helpful to the person you're expressing it towards. That actually it might be psychologically more healthy to reject those thoughts, to realize what they are, to not express them, and then to get back in this place of love and then communicate what needs to be communicated. You'll never regret not saying something out of a quick, angry reaction. But I found most of the things I regret saying, I regret because I just said them off the top of my head or because I said, I'm finally going to be honest and just spilled thoughts unfiltered by God's love for me and unfiltered by my call to be empathetically transformed as I love my neighbor. And then to communicate it lots of times. Over and over, communicate your love. And in various ways, right? This doesn't just mean saying I love you a thousand times a day. Um, people receive love in all kinds of different ways. You've got the famous love languages. For some people, time spent together is what communicates love to them. For other people, touch communicates love for them. For other people, um, you know, gifts or acts of service communicate love for them. Um, so to, to vary it up, to, to, to attack them with love on kind of every angle so that they receive that love um, and your relationship can be built up. Um, so for Jesus, love, love is the center here. Love is the key to everything in life, um, especially particularly our relationships. And everything else are really just details, are really just sub points that might help us get to a place of love or help us enact a place of love. Um, and so in relationships that we have right now that there might be tension in and relationships that we have right now that we're invested in and want to grow and build and encourage, um, the call remains the same from Jesus. Love God and love your neighbor. And if you do those things, you'll walk into the life of eternity. You'll find life. Everything that God's ever tried to communicate to us is covered if we can get to this point where we are actively 
engagingly, moment by moment, loving God, receiving his love for us, and then allowing that to flow through us into the love for other people. We'll find that our relationships are strong, our communities are strong, um, and that they'll survive much more of the bumps of life um, than if it was a, a weaker kind of connection, a weaker bond. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you. We thank you for...